Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, may those words that we just confessed in song truly be the prayer of our hearts this morning. That we would be lost in you. That it may be no more I, but Christ in me. Heavenly Father, that is our goal this morning, is to lift you up. Even as we have worshipped in song and in giving, even now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that your spirit would speak to us through your word, that your glory would shine forth, that you would accomplish in each and every one of us what you would have. Point out our sin, Lord. Call us to repentance that we may be rightly related to you and to each other, even as we see in this passage this morning, Lord, that your name may be lifted high, that we may testify not just to one another, but even to the world around us of the greatness of our God, his worth, his worthiness, his grace to save even one like me. So, Heavenly Father, may you accomplish your purpose this morning. May you be lifted high. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's easy to get caught up and sometimes even carried away in the moment, is it not? Have you ever had a moment like that where, where something is going on and you've kind of, you've lost perspective. You just get carried away in the moment and you're caught up in it. For instance, if you were to go to a Little League baseball game or any youth sports for that matter, you'd likely find parents who are caught up in the moment. They've lost all perspective. They're way too into it. In fact, I read a story this week of one such, one such incident in June of 2019. There was a particular Little League game in Lakewood, Colorado that got completely out of control. Now, you would think that, that in, in a situation like this where parents are, are really into it, that, that there would be some matter of importance, that this would matter. Maybe this was a, a high school game where it's a championship game where they're trying to get to the championship. But no, this was a game between seven-year-olds and the umpire was a 13-year-old. And according to the Lakewood Police Department, some parents did not like the calls that the 13-year-old umpire were making. And eventually, over the course of this game, they got more and more upset, spilling over to a confrontation where 15 to 20 parents stormed the field, began punching each other in an all-out brawl over a baseball game for seven-year-olds. In the end, four people were arrested and cited for disorderly conduct. Four people arrested 
at a baseball game for seven-year-olds. Those parents lost all perspective. This is obviously a very sad, it's an extreme example, but it illustrates how easy it is to get caught up in the moment. To forget what really matters. To see the big picture. Hopefully you've never been involved in a fight at a Little League baseball game. But I imagine that you likely have gotten dragged into a pointless argument on social media. Or maybe the the stress of workplace gossip. Some other controversy in some situation that you look back on later with embarrassment. That wasn't that big of a deal. Why did I get so worked up about it? How easy it is for us to lose perspective. To forget that life is bigger than Little League Baseball. Life is bigger than social media. Life is bigger than politics. It's bigger than entertainment or whatever else you might get sucked into. Life is bigger than that. It's more than that. In fact, as we turn our attention this morning to 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12, Peter's writing to these believers in Asia Minor. They are those who are, as as we've seen as we've worked our way through this book, they're either on the brink of persecution or they are in the very midst of it. And more is coming. There are storm clouds of persecution on the horizon. And Peter writes, reminding them that they are called to something greater than their present circumstances. Don't get caught up here in this. Don't lose perspective. Don't forget what is important. He writes to them acknowledging that yes, life is hard, but you have a hope that reaches beyond this life and that hope must inform everything that you do. And so this morning with these believers, we will be reminded that we too have a hope. And because we have a hope, we are called to live like it. Live like you have hope. Live with perspective. Don't get caught up in the moment. First thing we see is Peter's instructions in verses 8 to 9. His instructions. And he starts with the word finally in verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind. That finally is just a reminder that we come to this passage in a context. And if you remember, that context is really Peter's household codes. Over the last several verses, Peter has been dealing with relationships, starting all the way back with the relationships to how how do we as Christians, how do we relate to government? How do we relate to those who... Uh, are under us or over us, those whom have authority over us? How do we relate husbands and wives? Peter's been taking the, the gospel truths that he unpacked in chapters 1, the beginning of chapter 2, and he's been applying it to all of these relationships. 
Unless you've been listening to that and you think, well, that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't apply to me. He sums it up here. This applies to all of you. Finally, all of you be of one mind. This finally is a, a summation of 1 Peter 2.11 through 3.7. And it's really setting us up in this passage for where he's going to be going in the book. So summing up all of this teaching, this gospel truth applied to practical life, finally... All of you, every single one, those who have authority, those who don't, husband, wife, slave, governor, wherever you find yourself in life, whatever station, whatever authority God has given you, all of you who are in Christ, be of one mind. Note there, too, that also that all of you gives a responsibility to each and every one of us. He doesn't just write, finally, those of you who have authority, you make sure that the church is of one mind. Make sure that those around you have one mind. No, he's every single one of you no matter what your role is in the church, no matter what ministry you're involved in, no matter how young or how old you are, we all have a responsibility to be of one mind together. And really, does it not take all of us to be of one mind? It takes everybody. We all have this responsibility. And what is it that we are all called to? We are all called to be of one mind or to think the same This is not merely forced outward conformity. We can do that. We can force ourselves to conform together for a little bit to get along. But this goes beyond outward conformity. It's to think alike. Now let me ask you a question. How is that possible? How can something as diverse as the church expect to be of one mind? How can something that is made up of rich and poor, those with power and authority, those without power and authority, how can we be of one mind? Because this unity is gospel-informed unity. We are of one mind because we are all in Christ. Is that not been the message of Peter to this point? That you have a hope in Christ. You have one hope. You are citizens of a coming kingdom. Your citizenship is not here in this world. You are just passing through. This is the unifying power of the gospel that we see at work here. We think alike because our minds have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It ties back even to what Paul has said in Ephesians 4. On Sunday nights, we're, we're studying the idea of unity. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Brothers and sisters, the gospel must shape the way that we think. And as the gospel shapes the way that we think, the gospel will shape the way that we interact with one another. All of you be of one mind. What does this look like? What does this look like for us to be of one mind? Peter here gives us several pictures of it. Having compassion for one another. Compassion is a deep sympathy. It is to feel deeply. To feel what someone else feels. Compassion doesn't dismiss someone else's feelings. It is empathetic. It comes alongside, as Romans 12, 15 says, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It is the truth of the gospel that shapes our one mind. But truth is not devoid of feeling. We must have compassion for one another. We must feel deeply what each other feels. Not just compassion for one another, a deep sympathy. But as Peter goes on, and love as brothers. We know this word, Philadelphia, brotherly love, familial love. It's a love that is self-sacrificing, unconditional, unending. It's a love based on not what I can do for someone else. Just based on who I am. John 13, 34 to 35. By this people will know that you are my disciples. By what? By our love for one another. What a remarkable statement if you stop to think about that. The world will know that you are my disciples by your love. Not by our doctrine. There have been many men who have had solid doctrine, but that doctrine never penetrated their hearts. Not by our doctrine, but by our love. Because love is truth applied. It is the result of the gospel, uh, of gospel doctrine penetrating and changing a cold heart. Love is the gospel at work in and through me. In fact, I would submit to you, based on Jesus' words in John 13, based on all the teaching we have on the expectations of brotherly love in the church, that if you don't love, 
you're likely struggling in your faith. Love is doctrine applied. It is practical. He goes on third, be tenderhearted. This one again is related to compassion. It is a deep feeling towards others that results in caring action. Tenderness of heart assumes the best about someone else. I'm tender towards them. I am eager to forgive them. I am long-suffering towards them. I am kind. I am gentle. We understand that word tender, do we not? Just think of a bruise. You ever had a, one of those purple bruises on you where you touch it? You push on it, and it's, it's tender, right? It's more tender than the rest of your body. Not hard-hearted towards one another, tender-hearted. Easily disposed towards compassion and love. Tenderheartedness, it's, it's more than mere kind action. It is a developed heart attitude towards others. This one mind, it looks like having compassion. It looks like love as well as it looks like tenderheartedness. It looks like being courteous. As it's translated here in the New King James, the idea here is humility. Humble. Regarding others as more important than self. We walked through that several Sunday nights ago in Philippians 2.3. Jesus Christ, our extreme example of humility. Who gave up his rights for me. Let me just pause right here and ask. Do you see these characteristics in our church? Not just do you see them. in the church, but do you see them in yourself? Are you promoting this attitude, this brotherly love towards one? Are you promoting that, adding to that in our church? First Peter's not just for them, someone out there in history. It's for us. Brothers and sisters, we must have this same mind. We have this gospel hope. We must have this compassion for one another, this love as brothers, this tenderheartedness, this courteousness, this humility. Verse 9 goes on, and it's a little bit of a, of a shift here. He's still talking about this unity of mind. 
one-mindedness, thinking the same. But here in verse 9, Peter goes on, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. You see, this fifth characteristic moves beyond just the church to even all men. One who has this mindset is one who is quick to forgive. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But blessing. The idea of evil for evil, it sounds kind of scary the way it's written, that, that word evil, but, but really that, that's just justice. But brothers and sisters, in Christ we must not operate on the basis of justice, seeking an eye for an eye. Rather, we must operate on the basis of mercy as God has dealt with us. We don't seek an eye for an eye. Rather, we turn the other cheek. Whether it is a brother and sister in Christ who has offended us, or the world who hates us, we show mercy. Not only do we not seek justice or vengeance, we actually actively seek peace. This passage takes it beyond even just turning the other cheek to turning the other cheek, letting them slap me again, and then blessing them. To bless those who hate me. To treat them well regardless of how they treat me. To wish them well regardless of their wishes towards me. My fear this morning as I, as I preach this passage is that this is a call to radical love towards one another and towards the world around us. Yet I fear that we so often kind of soften passes like, passages like this. Well, in certain situations I can see this, but, you know, obviously there's practical things to consider. And I'm not saying that we be foolish or stupid, but brothers and sisters, this is a call to radical love. And maybe your question is, well, why? why? How can this be? Why would I not seek justice or, or, or uh, vengeance? Why would I give up my rights? Why would I regard others as more important than myself? Why would I be tender-hearted towards someone who I hardly know? How is this possible and why should I care? Because as the passage goes on, because of what you know, 
because you know that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Because I have a hope that goes beyond this world. My hope is not tied to the here and now. So I can endure here and now. I know who I am in Christ. I know where I am going. I know that this world is not my home. I know that I am just passing through. I am a stranger and an alien here. I know that I am to expect persecution. I'm not to expect people to love me. I'm to expect the world to hate me as they hated my Lord. I know that my hope is greater than this life, so I live like it. I don't lose that perspective, but I live in light of that perspective. I don't get caught up here. Because I know that life is more than here. So here we see Peter's instructions. Be of one mind. Love each other in this way. Bless, not curse. As you come to verses 10 to 12, you see Peter's source. Did you see 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 9, it's really Peter simply explaining and applying Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, which he quotes here in verses 10 to 12. We read the first nine verses of Psalm 34 this morning for our call to worship. In the context of this psalm, Psalm 34, where is the psalm where David has taken things into his own hand. You might remember the story from 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15, where David flees from Saul. He runs to Gath, to the Philistines. But then when he gets there, again, instead of trusting God, he takes things into his own hands and he pretends to be mad so that the king will release him, will let him go. And so Psalm 34 is is a psalm written by this man, David, who has done these foolish things, who trusted in himself, who took things into his own hands, rather than doing them the way that God commanded. And he's looking back as he writes Psalm 34. And though foolishly having done things his own way, David has learned that life is best lived in the fear of the Lord. So Psalm 34 is written from the perspective of a lesson he has learned that he is passing on to be taught to generations to come. I did things my way, and it was foolish, and it was stupid, and I failed. Let me tell you, fear the Lord. Trust him. His way is best. And so Peter has taken Psalm 34, and that's that's really where verses 8 to 9 comes from. This charge that we see to be of one mind, to have compassion, to love as brothers, to be tenor, to be courteous, to not return evil for evil, but on the contrary, to bless. It is Peter's application of Psalm 34. You see that even in the first word of verse 10. For, right? Do this, verses 8 to 9, do this. Why? Because this is what God has said in his word. For. 
for he who would love life and see good days. I think every one of us would raise our hand and say, yeah, that's me. I want to love life. I want to see good days. This is how you do that. Now again, we're working in two different contexts, right? In Psalm 34, David, as he's writing, is saying, he who would love life and see good days, he's talking literally physical life. Life works better as God has said it. Your life will go better if you submit to God. Peter is taking David's original meaning and he's expanding it to eternal life. Not only will life here go better if you submit to the Lord, but life in eternity will go better. You might say, well, how can that be, right? Because Peter is talking about persecution. He's talking about difficulty. How can he say that my life will be better even through persecution if I submit to God? Because it's the end result. We understand this in life. The day in, the day out, that might be hard. We get that in parenting, right? The day in and the day out, it's hard. But the reward is great. It is worth it in the end. Even this week as Chris and I were traveling, we were talking on the road one time, discussing different ministries and things the Lord has led us through. There was a particular time in our life that we were talking about, and, and we both said, I would never want to go back there, but I praise the Lord for that. I see now how he used that for good in me, to develop me, to grow me. That is the perspective with which Peter is writing. Persecution is hurt, hurts. Persecution is not easy. Life in general is not easy. But every single one of those things that you go through is being used by God to mold you into his image, to bring you to this inheritance that he has promised to you. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that not a single one of us or anyone who has ever lived who is in Christ will look back on their life and regret one single thing that God took them through. Because we will see with the perspective of eternity that every single bump and bruise and broken heart was worth it for God's glory as he used those things to mold us into his image. So do you you want to know how to love life, to see good days? Do you want to know how all of this is worth it? Then do these things. Submit to the Lord. And really, you see very similar here exactly what Peter has said. Number one, guard your tongue. Love the truth. Refrain from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Know the truth and love the truth and speak the truth. Brothers and sisters, the tongue is powerful. James 3 unpacks that for us. We saw this last week, or two weeks ago, in Psalm 120. The tongue is powerful. Use your tongue not for destruction, but use your tongue to speak truth. Not only guard your tongue, but he goes on in verse 11, guard your actions. 
the one who would love life, who would see good days, refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Note there's two steps there. Turn away from evil, recognize and avoid evil, and then turn and do good. Guard your actions. And finally, let him seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. Again, two steps here. To seek peace is to inquire after it, to go looking for it. And then to pursue it is to passionately go after it. Seek it, look for it. And when you catch a glimpse of it, go after it with all that is in you. Passionately pursue it. There's Romans 12, 18 says, As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do everything you can to pursue peace, to seek reconciliation. So guard your tongue, guard your actions, guard your heart. Because our heart wants vengeance. Our heart wants justice. But seek and pursue peace as much as it depends on you, whatever it takes. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. How encouraging is that truth that the Lord sees, that the Lord rewards, that no righteous deed goes unnoticed by the Lord, no matter how seemingly insignificant it is. He sees and he knows. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We saw a little bit of that application two weeks ago, 1 Peter 3, 7b. In the end of verse 7, where Peter's writing to the husband to treat his wife well. And what's the warning at the end of that verse? That your prayers may not be hindered. If you ignore these things, life will be hard. Life will be frustrating. Because the Lord will turn his face against you. He will not hear your prayers. So this morning I want you to see Through this passage, we've really walked through the same thing twice. Peter's instructions and then Peter's source. This morning, I want you to see that no matter what burdens you are carrying, what valleys you are walking through, or what fears keep you up at night, keep it in perspective. You have hope in Christ, and you are called to live in that hope.
Know beyond the shadow of a doubt that in the good hands of your sovereign God, every moment of this life has purpose and meaning. So live life in the context of eternity. Every unmet expectation has purpose in God's hands. Every painful trial has purpose. Every harsh word or painful action taken against you is seen by God and has purpose by Him. And yet at the same time, not only is there hope in this truth, there's also responsibility, is there not? See that truth, rejoice in that truth, and then respond rightly. It matters how you respond. Difficulty, frustration, and fear are no excuses for sinful responses. Treat others well. Pursue unity with gospel vision. Speak truth. Love one another and pursue peace with passion. Because you're not caught up in the moment. But you are living with a gospel-informed, eternal perspective. Brothers and sisters, the gospel message and the change that it brings are radical. And far too often, especially in a country like America where we have freedom, far too often we feel that we don't necessarily need each other. And so we settle for a surface level ability to get along on Sundays. We get along with a group of people where we like some people. We have our little cliques. Some people we don't care for. We would never admit that out loud, but we know it's true. And sadly, some people in here you probably don't even know or haven't talked to in a long time. That's not what Peter imagines as he writes this. Rather, what we see here in this passage is the purposeful, painful pursuit of gospel, of true gospel unity. And I say painful there because this type of gospel-mindedness towards one another, it's going to cost you something. It will cost you comfort, especially if you're an introvert. This isn't easy. It's going to cost you comfort. It's going to cost you time as you invest in others. I'm sure we've all been there to our shame where we have an opportunity to love someone or to share the gospel with someone. But we also have an errand to run. So we check our clock and I'm just not going to go there because I know I don't have time. I think we often look back on those moments and we regret not taking the time. But how many times have we not taken the time to love someone because of the same? I see someone walking down the hall. I'm going to go out this door because I just don't have time to sit and listen to them today. 
This kind of love costs you time. It costs you comfort and it costs you emotionally. It's not easy to weep with people, to rejoice with people. It will wear you down. It'll probably cost you a little bit financially. And yet we know that we are called to this. We know that we have a great inheritance in Christ. So don't get caught up in the moment. But keep perspective. In Christ, you have one hope. So let us strive together to live together like that is true. Let us love one another. Radically, passionately, compassionately, with tender heartedness and humility, blessing and not cursing.